I, I was hearing voices. I thought God was talking to me. I thought that, you know, the police could hear everything that I was thinking. And it just, it tore down and I got into a car wreck uh, because I was fearful of what the police were gonna do to me. And I was on a mission and I couldn't stop that mission. And so with that fear, I got into a car wreck on the last red light that I ran. I ran through and someone passed away. Hi, this is Thomas Austin, the host of the Teenage Impact Podcast, where we share stories, tips, and specific strategies on how you as a teenager can overcome the struggles in your life. I've interviewed over 70 people from around the world on their struggles in their life, how they overcame them, and how you can too. It is finally time. I released my book, Never Fight Alone. Never Fight Alone is 51 inspiring interviews to help you overcome your struggles and improve your mental health. I've interviewed people who were sexually abused at the age of six years old. I interviewed people who tried committing suicide. I interviewed people with confidence issues, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, all different types of struggles and challenges in their life. And they overcame those challenges to create their own definition of success. I want you to get your copy today. The hardcover copy is already sold out on the very first day and it's going out fast. Get your copy today on Amazon. Click the link in the description. It's available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. It's one of those life-changing books that can really make an impact on you. Today's podcast guest is Jonathan Lowe. Jonathan has an incredible story to share. At a young age, he was adopted. And from then on, he kept a lot of his feelings to himself. He had suicidal thoughts. He went to therapy at a young age. And he kept it in for so long. And it led to an accident when he was younger in 2010. It led to an accident where, where he ran three red lights and killed someone. Then he went to jail for a year and a half and then a mental hospital for the next seven years. During his stay at the hospital, he became the student body president for his college. He studied psychology for Pueblo Community College. This is his last semester. And he has some big plans with changing some of the policies for mental health. So give it up for Jonathan Lowe as he talks about his mental health journey and how he went from someone who was suicidal to a mental hospital to becoming the student body president for his college to someone who is trying to make an impact in the mental health community. Give it up for Jonathan Lowe. Hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm fantastic. Jonathan, you know, before we actually go into the accidents and what happened, can you actually lead up to who Jonathan was as a child and maybe a couple of your struggles? Uh, yes. You know, I, I grew up in a great family, um, but it didn't start out that way. I was uh, living with my birth parents until I was two and a half. Uh, there was there was an incident where my birth father pulled a gun on my birth mom and I and tried to kidnap me and you know he was on drugs and just not in a right state of mind and then eventually 
I was adopted uh, because my birth mother could not raise me on her own. And then from there, I was adopted into the family that I have now, uh, and they have been amazing. However, at the same time, I was also very angry uh, at, my birth, at my mom because she was trying to replace my birth mother. And that didn't happen until about junior high. Um, before then, life had been great. There were still, there were a few issues that came up with nightmares about my birth father pulling a gun on my, my, my birth mother and I. And from there, I mean, it was just, you know, I did, I went to therapy from a very young age dealing with those nightmares and did EMDR and that helped a ton. And uh, junior high, that's where I, that's where I really started to struggle with not only anger, but also identity crisis Mm -hmm. with the identity crisis. I, uh, you know, and I didn't, I didn't learn until later how to deal with that as a child. I was really struggling with just how, how to fit in. Um, And I didn't realize that I was a chameleon. You know, I, I changed my personality based upon who I was around uh, and I and I didn't understand myself, and I didn't learn until much later that I needed to understand that if I fit in with myself, I can fit in anywhere. Uh, so I don't need to work, you know, be with other people or change for other people. I just need to be who I want to be, uh, and that and that gave me a huge boost and and being able to identify who I was and how I want to be in the world. And then also with the anger towards my birth mother or to- towards my mom, it was, it was one of those things that I had never really dealt with for a long time until many years down the road. Uh, once I understood, like as an adult, um, after I moved out, then I was able to uh, figure out how to deal with that anger um, through therapy and also through understanding how much my parents had been there throughout everything, which I'll share later. Were you still talking to your birth mother at that time? No, I was not. Um, There was no communication. Uh, There was a talk, like we did talk a little bit in junior high. Uh, She called my parents' place. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I I talked to her. I answered the phone once. And we were talking about me meeting Melanie as I started to struggle with my identity crisis and as well as my anger Mm -hmm. uh my family was talking about me possibly meeting melanie and it was i think it scared my family and on top of that i know uh from talking to my mom about that later on she was talking to someone that she knew as a therapist and they said it would not be good to introduce you know, another another scenario into my already struggles of identity crisis. During this time, I actually was also cutting myself. So uh, instead of expressing my anger outwardly and like yelling or hitting or anything like that, I turned it internally mm-hmm. because it was something that I had to deal with myself. And it was, it, it didn't, it didn't help me with my family relationships or anything because I was holding back so much from my family. Why do you think you kept it so much to yourself rather than um, it to your family? I kept it, I kept it to myself for two things. One, I didn't want to hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has, I understood what it like, what it was like to be hurt. 
you know, from being adopted. It was like people chose my life and I, you know, I felt hurt a lot of the time. And so understanding that and also, you know, when, when you have a trauma and you're, and you're adopted, you get really good at reading people. So I, I didn't want to hurt because I could see that they were frustrated that they couldn't connect with me. I didn't open up because I knew that me opening up would further that hurt. Mm -hmm. It's crazy that you say you got really good at connecting with people because I actually interviewed someone else. His name was Anthony trucks. He was, he was adopted too, but he was in foster care for quite some years and was abused. But he also said that he got really good at reading people to mm -hmm. who's genuine and to who's not genuine. Yep. So it's a really interesting point. Why do you think that is? I know from my studies uh, that when you have trauma, you have a heightened sense of awareness. Mm -hmm. And because of that awareness, you are always reading the room to see what's what's good and what's bad or what's dangerous and what's, mm -hmm. you know, something, what's the safe space. Uh, and in that I, I was very attuned to my environment and the people around me. And I was, I mean, it just, with that heightened awareness, I, I learned how to read people and, and be able to, you know, find out where, where I could be accepted and where I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now tell us about how the accident happened and what led up to the accident. Leading up to the accident, it took it took about a year's time before I got into my accident, um, but it was a year-long process. My birth mother had found me in 2009 on Facebook, and we started to talk. And, and during this time, my I opened up to my family about you know her messaging me, and it was the response from my family was hard for me to deal with. You know, they, they tore apart her messages and like, she, and Melanie didn't use my last name, which they were upset about. Uh, she also used my original, my original name and the way it was spelled versus the way my parents changed it to, it was the same name just spelled differently. And there were little things like that. And so it, it brought up this, it brought up this fear uh, in meeting Melanie because my family wanted to be there when I met her. I, I, I felt like my family was trying to get me to not show love to Melanie. Uh, and I, and on top of that, that heightened awareness brought me to a point to where I was just really, I guess, I guess it was just trying not to hurt my mom that had raised me. And I also didn't want to hurt Melanie by not showing her the love that I actually felt. Um, so I felt stuck in the middle. Uh, and during this year we were planning to meet uh, and it took some time to set that up. And how old were you at this time? I was, tw I, she found me when I was 20 and then we were supposed to meet when I was 21. Okay. And during this time I also was using drugs. Uh, so I was, all over the place doing hallucinogenics and it just it it threw me into a tailspin also i started working uh growing up that was how i dealt with my emotions i i instead of being angry at my family i would work and get away from my family because that was my escape 
And so as an adult, I did the same thing. Uh, work was my escape. It was, it was a place that I could do really well at because I was raised uh, to work. When I was 12 years old, I started working with my dad. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, you know, it, it took some time and eventually my mental health broke. My family was looking for a hospital that would accept me. And it took five different hospitals to finally find one that accepted me. Mm-hmm. And that hospital was not that great either. Uh, I was in there for two and a half weeks and they diagnosed me and kicked me out uh, because I didn't have insurance. Therefore, eventually I was faced with $850 worth of medications uh, per month, no insurance, living, living alone, no job, and just in a very, very bad situation. And I was still sick. I still didn't understand why I was in the building. I didn't even understand that it was a hospital. I had no idea what, it, what was going on. And during this time that I was released, I had two days that were okay. And then the rest of the days were falling apart again um, to a point that was much worse than I had ever had. And, you know, it was, it was such a bad break that I eventually got in, like I, 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 I was hearing voices. I thought God was talking to me. I thought that, you know, the police could hear everything that I was thinking and it just, it tore down and I got into a car wreck uh, because I was fearful of what the police were going to do to me. And I was on a mission and I couldn't stop that mission. And so with that fear, I got into a car wreck on the last red light that I ran. I ran three of them and someone passed away. And so then I went to, from there. Would you say most definitely it was the drugs or was it just a mixture of the drugs and everything you were feeling? I, I believe it was a mixture. It was, it was the ultimate thing, you know, me working overtime and not taking time to rest me, not exercising. I was really, you know, and that's something that my parents really taught us well, you know, all my brothers and sisters is we learned to work out and I, I was not doing that. I wasn't, I mean, I, I felt the family stress being in the middle. I felt, I mean, it was just everything, everything imploded at that point. And in the end, you know, someone passed away and, and it started my, my journey of, I guess, healing. You know, it was, it was the universe's way of saying, you know what? No, we're going to, we're going to make you face yourself. Cause I was running for myself for so long. Mm-hmm. You took it by just driving, 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 driving. And until you got to, to the accident, correct? Yes. And then what happened after that? Uh, I went to jail for a year and a half mm-hmm. uh, in the jail system. I, I was, I wasn't ready to deal with what had happened. Uh, but my, my response was to try to commit suicide multiple times, you know, cognitively, cognitively, I couldn't deal with the fact that someone had passed away because of me. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like my world was coming to an end because I, I, I was stuck. I, 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 it was partly because I couldn't, I struggled facing myself and, and not only what I had done, but everything in my life was in a little box that I was stuck in. Mm-hmm. 
Were you sentenced to a year and a half or you got out early? I actually was sentenced at a year and a half. Okay. Um, and I was sentenced with an NGRI, which uh -huh. means uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. And from there, you're sentenced to a day to life at a mental hospital. And I'm still part of that process. Are you part of the mental hospital right now? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm still part of the process, though I've made huge strides over the years. I actually have a meeting coming up soon to get more privileges. And so initially, when you went to the mental hospital, what was your reaction? Was it, was in, it like, I want to go home? Or is it, okay, this is a good thing for me? It was, my parents were telling me it was a good thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't fully understand. Uh, I didn't understand that I could progress through the hospital. Mm -hmm. So in, in my mind, the unit I was on was all there was. And... Uh, in that, I, I really struggled with depression and suicidality and many things because I didn't see a future. I thought, I'm stuck here and this is where my life is going. What got you through the, these moments of suicide thoughts? For me, I, I mean, having someone to talk to all the time because mm -hmm. I lived with about 26 people on whichever unit I was on. And then they also had about five staff members. So it was just the continued security of the general daily life. You know, you wake up, you do your thing. And, and it took, eventually, uh, there was a huge change. And I started to question a lot of philosophy. And in that, I, I started to discover that even though that life seemed meaningless, there was still a meaning because I, if I was still breathing, I was still giving back into this world. So it gave me a sense of purpose because I was giving carbon dioxide to plants. So even in this small finite world that I was stuck in, I was still doing something that was purposeful in this world. What was that mental shift? How many years in and what? Oh, that took about three years to get there. Three years and three years. Well, from from jail all the way to about two years into the hospital was that was a huge shift. What got you to that shift? Many many staff members sitting down and talking mm -hmm. to me and listening to my philosophy and and trying to you know help me through that, as well as a, a huge part was due to my continued questioning and continuing to live. Um, I feel I felt like. Through it, I actually came up with a deeper meaning that has resonance no matter where I'm at in life. Mm -hmm. And through questioning and really digging deep and continuing my therapy and continue pushing forward, it was, it was one of those things that was just a slow process. In addition, I also was reading a lot of books. That was something that I learned as a child. You know, uh, I was homeschooled and we read a lot on our own. We taught ourselves and so through this reading, I was, you know, I was questioning religion. I was questioning, I mean, just everything about life and what its meaning was. And, and through that, I started to construct over periods of time how to, where I was at. And once you kind of had that revelation, like, did you find your purpose in life? Did you say, okay, this is what my purpose is? 
I found I found my base meaning of purpose, and I f I personally go through times where I have to question my meaning again, and adjust it. Yes. You know that that one's always true. Though I know as as time goes on, I can always add more. Anything beyond just breathing was huge. It, it was it was just extra, mm -hmm. and. And as I go through the stages of life of the, you know, identity crisis still that I go through, I, I found out that there's always new changes. Life will change. So you need yeah. to create a new meaning and that, that pertains to the current moment. It's so powerful because, you know, what, what I preach about in some of my speaking engagements is pursuing your purpose and pursuing your meaning in life. And a lot of times high school students, they may or may not know what they want to do for the rest of their life, but it, it doesn't really matter because you evolve as a person and as you have new experiences in life, your definition of what, how life is supposed to be will also change. But that does not mean you do not pursue whatever is in front of you and create meaning in your life what it is today. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. What would you say, what was your rituals in the hospital, especially in the beginning? And those changed over time as well. You know, they had, in the very beginning, they had a bedtime for me. Uh, and a, I mean, it was set up by rules. Um, so there was, you know, you get up at 7 a.m., you take meds, and at 8, 8 to 9 at night, you're taking your meds again, and you're going to bed at 10 and throughout the day, you had to do current events, you had to watch the news, you had to uh, do groups, and it was just a, it was a ritual. I mean, even eating was on a schedule. You know, you knew, okay, at 4.30, you're eating dinner, or, you know, at 11.30, you're eating lunch. And it, at first, it was consistent, so it was very helpful in me creating later on. I live on my own now. Uh, yet I'm, I still have to go to treatment there and I still take some of those rituals. You know, I eat at, at particular times. I, uh, I have now even more rituals where I wake up and I go to bed and I have a process to get to bed. Mm -hmm. It's not just, Oh, you have to go to bed. It's like, okay, I have an alarm that goes off at eight thirty, and that's when I start my process to going to bed. Um, I, I turn down electronics. I, you know, do all these different things. So looking at those rituals in the very beginning, it was made for me, but later I turned them into my own. Mm -hmm. When did you go to college? I started college after in the hospital, I dealt with a lot of anger mm -hmm. and I, I started college after I read a book uh, called The Obstacle is the Way. And the gist of that Ob book... Obstacles of the Way? The Obstacle is the Way. Obstacle is the Way. And the gist of that book is the obstacle in the path is the path. So stop looking at it as an obstacle. Yeah. And with my anger, I was so ticked off about the system and how they had failed me. And on top of that, the hospital had a lot of frustrations that I had. Uh, I was angry a lot of the time. And part of that, part of that anger, I started to realize, okay, how can I, how can I change this into something constructive? Mm -hmm. And 
in that I, I started to realize that, okay, mental health is going to become my path. I have to be healthy all the time. And I want to make something purposeful out of this, this journey. And I wanted to change mental health policies because of that. And so that no one else fell through the cracks. And I started school, gosh, it was 2016. Mm -hmm. um, after I, I got to the hospital in 2012. So it was about four years after in what college? I started at Pueblo Community College. Gotcha. And it was, I, I flourished there. You know, you became, as. Uh, you became student body president, right? Yes, uh, within a year's time. Wow. And, you know, I, I was still living in the hospital when I was student body president. So uh, during this process, or during the ending of my, my stay at the hospital, a lot of the staff members were like, why are you here? <laughs> and it's because of the paperwork process. And that was, that was a big part of my frustration that pushed me to go to school because I understood the process was not, is not working all the time. Uh -huh. And how do you think that fl helped you flourish as an individual, that one position? That position helped me in many ways. It gave me a sense of responsibility. It gave me a sense of control. And it also gave me uh, a community where I felt it was a community outside of the hospital that I felt secure in. Mm -hmm. um, and in that I started because for a long time I was at, at being adopted. I struggle with moving on from one, st one stage of life to the next, you know, whether it means moving or, uh, letting go of the past stuff. You know, I, I like, I like predictability. And with that, basically I, that was a community that was predictable and I felt secure. And eventually, you know, it was, it became my saving grace when I moved out because it was still there when I moved out mm -hmm. of the hospital. Earlier you said that you thought the system failed you. Why do you think the system failed you? Because it, for one, one of the policies that I want to make sure that they change is uh -huh. I don't think they should be able to release you without you having insurance. Mm -hmm. And that was a big failure. If I had insurance, I may have taken my meds mm -hmm. because I couldn't afford them because I didn't have a job. Yeah. Uh, and, and in that, I mean, it was just, it's one of those big flaws that I think we can fix. And on top of that, I didn't have enough education on mental illness when I was there. I didn't, I still didn't understand why I was there. I didn't understand what being sick meant. Um, I mean, they had groups and stuff, but I was, I was just not getting it. It had a very negative connotation. Yes. What do you want to do to change some of these policies? Because I know, what's your major right now? Uh, psychology. Psychology and you had a minor? Yeah, I, I have a minor in sociology. Okay, but you want to go into policy change? Yes, I, I would like to go into policy change eventually where I am thinking of going to public health with a focus on policy change. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things that I discovered going to school is I started school with one direction, aiming towards a psychology and a, 
uh, a doctorate in psychology and a doctorate in law mm -hmm. because I felt like those were it. And eventually through interviewing people, I interviewed one of the directors of a health program here in Pueblo, um, Pueblo Community Health Center. And he was like, oh no, this is, this is the career that you want. And right now I'm, I'm still split. You know, I, I also like the personal change on an individual level. Mm -hmm. And I know I could still make policy changes without the public health degree. Mm -hmm. What would you say like your number, like this, your top two goals are in the next five to 10 years? My top two goals, I, in the next five years, I would like to start working with NAMI, mm -hmm. um, National Alliance for Mental Illness. Mm -hmm. or even uh, National Institute for Health. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, just using their research and being able to make those changes uh, that I see. And, you know, it's not, only, it's not only changes to the mental health system per se, but it's also adoption. Uh, I really want to change some of the guidelines that are around adoptees. You know, one of the one of the big failures too was the syst that system not sharing medical records throughout the entirety of me growing up. Mm -hmm. If we had known that my birth father had a mental illness, we may have been able to catch it sooner and understood that this would come up. Mm -hmm. And so there are, there are some mental health pieces that I think would be in addition to the adoptee perspective as well. Wow. That's, that's very true. You know, you were talking about how you just didn't understand why you were in the hospital. And there's a very negative stigma around being in a mental hospital. People, yes. there's a lot of people who would probably look down upon you. What would you say, what would you tell them? And how, how are you different after coming out of the mental hospital? I had a, I, I got a tattoo, uh, actually, uh, I think it was like six months before I, everything happened yeah. and it was a tree, uh, and I have a huge tattoo and it, it basically represented to me at that time that you are who you are, no matter what your surroundings are. Yeah. And it was in reflection of, you know, a bunch of houses being built around trees. They always remain the same. They remained who they were. And that was my saving grace throughout the entirety of the hospital. It was like a reminder, you know, the hospital does not change who I am. This isn't who I am. I am who I am at the root because of who I am. It's, it's not determined by this building that's surrounding me. So I had that little piece all the way through that helped keep me on a perspective that help, was helpful. Mm -hmm. And, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what are some, some of the pros and cons of being in the hospital? Some of the pros and cons, they, they didn't, as much as they had consistency of schedule, mm -hmm. they didn't have consistency of punishment. Okay. Um, so it seemed like everything was always unfair. Either you were getting treated better than another person that did the exact same thing and had a more severe punishment, or it was vice versa. And one lesson I learned from that is that all of life is unfair or life is fair because it's unfair to everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we all have our own stories and, and we'll all go through our own stuff, but 
I mean, in the end, it was the pros and cons. Um, I, I met some amazing people. You know, part of that was the creating of the labyrinth. It was a way to find self-forgiveness, um, not only for myself, but for what had happened, but also learning how much, how much I could do. I mean, I, we raised $50,000 for a memorial project at the hospital, and it was a huge influencer into me being able to find purpose again. And I, I, the pros were all the self-work that I learned. I learned so much, so many skills throughout that time. And the cons, I mean, when everyone hears about the state hospital, everyone mm -hmm. has a negative view. You know, I, I just spoke to a class that the teacher was like, they think that everyone there is dangerous. And we're just normal people, you yeah. know, that had a situation where we got into, got into a point to where we needed legal help um, because we couldn't, you know, we didn't understand the sense of right and wrong at that point in time. Uh -huh. So, and that, that was a journey to get over. And I mean, I, I really liked, uh, there was, again, one of the books that was recommended to me in the hospital. Again, you know, a pro, uh, another pro. I was recommended a lot of books that helped me along this journey. And Brene Brown was a huge influencer in my life of not letting it, not, not having shame about my story, but just coming out stronger. What, what, what would you say is your top book? But. Oof. right now i would say it's i i would have there's three books that i really struggle it's between top, those two three. top one top one i would say is untethered soul untethered soul by who uh michael a singer mm -hmm. he he has one of those things uh one of those perspectives that the inner voice that we have that is always beating us up or building us up, we don't have to listen to it. It's an, it's an annoying roommate and that's it. Uh, at the basis, we are just the conscious observer and we go through life and do our best and, and we just observe, you know, everything is, everything isn't always going to be there. It's going to pass. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense. And in addition, there's also another perspective that helps, which is we're one person floating on a planet that is in the middle of a galaxy that it makes, that is, seems like a speck of dust in the universe. Mm -hmm. So what are my problems? You know, and, and it really puts things into perspective. If you can go back when you were a teenager, when you were going through these insecurities in suicide ideations, what would you do differently? How would you approach some of the ne negative circumstances and negative thoughts that you were facing? Number one, opening up to my family. Okay. That's, that's a big one. And also utilizing therapy more. I, I, that's one thing that I really struggled with then because I felt like they were telling my parents everything. And, and that's not true. I mean, I've learned over the years that that is a safe space. Also, uh, journaling and being mindful 
I, I learned a lot of mindfulness over the years and those are those are some of the influential things that I wish I had taken more seriously at that point in time. Right now, do you talk, if, if you don't mind sharing, do you talk to your birth mother right now? Yes, uh, we actually met, it was two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And I decided instead of getting in the middle between the families, like I felt before I, I met her on my own and it, there's still awkward moments, you know, trying to figure out how do I, how do I fit into her story? How do I fit in and how does she fit into my story? How do we work together? And it, it, it I mean, we've had some tough conversations over the years and now that that one of the big realizations at that time was she wasn't going to fill that hole inside me. Mm -hmm. I thought that as a, as a child, I had that dichotomy of thinking about the, my other family, you know? Uh, and I thought that other family that I had been taken away from would solve all my problems. Mm -hmm. And it didn't, it didn't. So it's been a journey of realizing that. And I, I worked on it a lot in therapy after I didn't think that I was going to meet her. And one day she called up and I was like, sure, come on over. <laughs> so sometimes I feel like, you know, we try to find fill that void, whether it's from the other family or whether it's or with something else, just in general mm -hmm. in life, we try to always fill a void. But when we realize that we cannot, there's nothing that can fill the void except just being present at this time. And just enjoying the moment. There is no void. That void is, I feel like, it's just an imagine figure of your imagination. Yes. Sometimes. Yes. And, it, and it's playing scenarios in the head. And from my personal experience, that's definitely not true. Yeah, I, I've. Uh, it's. I think that void is created when we search uh -huh. outside of ourselves for ourselves. Uh, -huh. uh, you know, whether it's buying things, it's like, oh, this defines me. This defines me. And once we go inside and we find our definition within us, you know, that's, that's where I've found the most, uh, satisfaction of filling that void. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's one thing you would tell a teenager who is struggling right now? One thing that I would say is, I, I guess I would just say, you know, number one, reach out. You are not alone. Generally, when people commit suicide, they leave behind about six to seven people, and this is researched, that are wondering what they could have done more. Mm -hmm. So you are not alone, even though you feel alone. And that, that has been the biggest thing with multiple people that I've had that passed away mm -hmm. due to suicide. And, it, and it, there's always people wondering what they could do. And as that they're wanting to reach out and they're wanting to help you. You just need to be able to voice, Hey, I need help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You never fight alone. And that's the title of my book. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you did your research or something, but I end, I end all my interviews with this one question. All my interviews, I think you're my 70 seconds or 71st. I don't know, over 70. And I, it's about resiliency. It's about overcoming your struggles 
to create your own definition of success. But what does resiliency mean to you? Resilience to me means instead of trying to deny your story, you own it. And you create your own, like as it goes with Dr. Brene Brown, you know, you create your own daring ending. You are not, you're not trying to be the hero. You're not trying to be the victim. You're just writing your story. That's it. Yeah. And you create the definition of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. It's great. And where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, if they want to find me, they can find me at JM, JML, L is, uh, L is in Larry, 52698 at gmail.com. Okay. And they so can email you just to connect with you, say hello, question. Definitely. Awesome. Most definitely. And I also, uh, I work at another place doing, working on mental health. Um, we are going to be starting up some online groups. So they can also reach me through uh, friendlyharborpueblo.org and join some of the online groups that we have mm-hmm. for mental health. And you can join anywhere in the world. Sure. And then I'll include that link in the podcast description. All right. Thank you. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure Honestly, man, I've learned so much just by interviewing you. And I feel like you're such an inspiration and you have an incredible story and it's, it's not even over. You still got a long ways to go and I, and I could just feel you're going to make some great changes in the world. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm excited. I'm going to buy your book. <laughs> I really want to read it. Check it out. Great, man. All right. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast episode with Jonathan Lowe. It was definitely an inspiring one. I hope you learned a lot. Like I mentioned in the beginning, if you haven't done so, purchase my new copy of my book, Never Fight Alone. It's one of those life-changing books that can help you improve your mental health. It gives you actionable steps to create success in your life. Click the link in the description or you can type in on Amazon, Never Fight Alone, Shlomo Solson, and until next time, peace.